This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Dr. Raymond Razonable, an infectious disease specialist, professor of medicine and vice chair of the Infectious Diseases Division at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In this podcast, we are going to discuss a very controversial topic in the treatment of SARS-Coronavirus-2, which is causing the pandemic that leads to the clinical disease known as COVID-19. Specifically, the combination treatment of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin has been the subject of intense debate worldwide. For some, it carries some hope, yet it is associated with significant and potentially fatal toxicity. What is the data out there? Today, we are joined over the phone by two infectious disease pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christina Rivera and Dr. Ryan Stevens. Thank you for joining us today, Christina and Ryan. Let me start off by asking the question, what is the data out there for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine? Well, Dr. Rosenable, um I'll field that one. This is Ryan. And you know, initially, uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have been used specifically when they were looking at the treatment of other coronaviruses that have been seen over time, such as uh, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV, which are also both coronaviruses. And based on the preliminary data in those two coronaviruses, the Chinese, in the early stages of the outbreak, they picked up chloroquine as a potential treatment option. And again, important to note that they use chloroquine in many of the Chinese studies, which the availability of their data is still pending at this point in time. So we don't know a lot besides sort of preliminary and anecdotal reports that are coming out of that region. But based on the fact that chloroquine is currently on a United States shortage, and it's a very difficult product to get, and sort of coupled with the better tolerability of hydroxychloroquine, uh, hydroxychloroquine has started to gain a little bit more traction in the United States. So, so Ryan, uh, uh, What's the suspected mechanism of action? How does it work? Yeah, so we know we use hydroxychloroquine uh, in the treatment of many uh, different rheumatologic disorders, but as far as it goes with viral replication and and the treatment of SARS-CoV-2, the effect on viral replication is really thought to be through the alkalinization of some intracellular uh, components that interferes with the ability of the virus to replicate. It also is thought that potentially it impairs the ability to glycosylate some of the viral receptors on the surface of the cell, thereby inhibiting um, the viral entry into the cell. It also has some anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effects, although what's predominantly being claimed as sort of the, the claim to fame in hydroxychloroquine is these potential antiviral activities. There's, notably, there's a pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic study that came out of China in early March. And um, this study was published in Clinical Infectious Disease. And what they specifically looked at was the activity of both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine against SARS-CoV-2. And they did find that both agents were active against the virus, although they did show that hydroxychloroquine may actually have a little bit greater antiviral activity with a lower EC50 or sort of the marker Uh, antiviral activity of the agent. They also looked at the known pharmacokinetics uh, in healthy volunteers and tried to simulate what a few different dosing regimens might predict as far as targeting an appropriate pharmacodynamic uh, response uh, from the organism, the virus. And they ended up uh, showing that many of the regimens were adequate to produce uh, what we needed, and they recommended that the shortest, uh, lowest dose regimen be used, which 
equated to 400 milligrams given twice a day on the first day of therapy, and then followed by 200 milligrams twice a day on days of therapy two through five. Okay. So, Ryan, this yes. is, this is yeah, thank you. Um, just to point out, this is just a pharmacokinetic study. So this is not looking at um, how the uh, amounts of drugs in humans may behave against coronavirus or COVID. Correct, Ryan? Yeah, that's correct. And it, this, the dosing regimen is specifically based off this pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic study. And as far as clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine, specifically in humans that are, have the disease state, COVID-19, from SARS-CoV-2, um, the, we have very limited evidence. And uh, one study that we do have that's been gaining a lot of traction in the U.S. and has sort of been generating a lot of conversation is a study that was published on March 17th in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. And in short, this is a small, open-label, non-randomized trial that was performed in France. And what they did was they set out to look at uh, the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of SARS-CoV-2. And they found uh, they, they looked at 20 patients who were receiving treatment with hydroxychloroquine and 16 patients that were not receiving hydroxychloroquine that they considered their control arm. And the dose that they used of the hydroxychloroquine in their study was 200 milligrams uh, orally three times a day for 10 days, which notably differs from the regimen that we're seeing as the predominant regimen in the United States. And what they found uh, was that hydroxychloroquine produced a superior viral clearance as measured by nasopharyngeal PCR swabs. And they saw this effect start on day three of therapy, and, and they claimed it to hold true through the full six days that they monitored patients. Now, importantly, they didn't report clinical outcomes. Their primary outcome was specifically looking at virologic clearance. And so um, that is a great limitation to the study. And they didn't report this data, but they also made the claim that perhaps there was a greater effect on viral clearance for patients with upper respiratory and lower respiratory tract infection as compared to some of the asymptomatic patients that were included. And so this study has led to a lot of uh, chatter and a lot of discussion about the benefits of using hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19. But there's a lot of methodology flaws and flaws to the study that I think would have to be considered before we widely roll this out in, in the treatment of our patients. And some of those are the fact that it was extremely small. Again, we're talking about 20 patients in the, in the treatment arm versus 16 patients in a control arm. Patients were excluded from the primary analysis if they didn't have data available on day six uh, of, of the trial. And this actually led to the excluding of six patients that were previously uh, eligible for enrollment. And all six of those patients were in the hydroxychloroquine monotherapy arm, and four of them were actually lost to follow-up because they experienced what we would sort of define as poor outcomes, being that they either had to have their care escalated or uh, one of the patients actually died. And so th that's a, a tremendous limitation is if we're excluding patients that we already know how to poor outcome. Additionally, like I said, we didn't report clinical outcomes for these. We had reported virologic clearance of the organism from a nasopharyngeal swab as the primary endpoint. And a major limitation is that we don't really know if the timing of nasopharyngeal PCR clearance really correlates with superior clinical outcomes in, uh, in patients. So another issue is this study had a really short follow-up, only six days that may not fully capture the virologic picture. For instance, the authors reported one case in the combination group that was negative on day six, but then turned positive on day eight. That is very true, Christina. And, 
and really where we find sort of the meat and potatoes of this study as far as if we're going to give it a good critical eval is in the supplementary table one, um, which is where they define the, the specific outcomes by for each patient that was enrolled over the course of their six-day follow-up. Now, I think it's important that we look at what they define as a negative PCR value from the swab, and that they define that as a cycle threshold, which is the number of cycles the PCR makes before it detects the organism of 35. So in the context of cycle threshold, the more cycles that the machine has to make before it detects the presence of the virus, potentially the lower the viral burden. So a low cycle threshold may indicate a higher burden of virus, if that makes sense. They defined a negative cycle threshold of 35, whereby many have recommended a cycle threshold of 40 should be actually what defines a negative PCR. So even their cycle threshold didn't quite um, meet what we might consider to be a current standard. And this concept of cycle threshold will also come back up as, as we discussed azithromycin um, addition a little bit later. One other important point to note is that if you look at supplementary table one, you can see that the control group uh, were at different locations. They weren't at the, at the hospital that was actually doing the study of, uh, or the administration of hydroxychloroquine. And in the control group, uh, many of the PCR data points, they were either missing or they were simply defined as positive or negative rather than given a cycle threshold. And this, like I said, it likely has to do with the fact that this was performed at multiple locations, but the fact that there's so much missing or uh, uh, data that's not clearly defined should give us a little bit of pause when we compare the actual treatment arm to the control arm. In regards to data, I mean, in fact, 10 out of 16 of the control patients were missing at least half of their data points. That's pretty significant. Yeah, very true. It's a very significant finding that I think should give us pause. And so in conclusion, the study, honestly, it's generated a lot of attention, but widespread application of it really isn't possible and or appropriate at this time. And I think we can look at the in vitro data, and we can look at some of the preliminary hydroxychloroquine data, and, and I'm not ready to exclude it as having activity in the treatment of COVID-19, but I think that we have to acknowledge that much still remains unknown about what the clinical effects of actually treating patients with hydroxychloroquine may be over time. Okay, and what about Zitromax or Zitromycin? Uh, where did this come from? So the azithromycin claim, uh, the claim of addition of azithromycin to hydroxychloroquine, came from the same study from a very small subgroup that was analyzed. So they took the 20 patients that were administered hydroxychloroquine, and they further separated them into six that received combination therapy and 14 that received monotherapy. And they claimed that there was a superior viral clearance that was observed with combination therapy at day six, and this was 100% of the combination therapy, which, again, note that that means six out of six patients as compared to only 51% of the patients treated with hydroxychloroquine monotherapy experienced viral or virologic clearance of their nasopharyngeal swab at day six. Now, if there was poor or weak data for hydroxychloroquine, this is where things really start to fall apart for this study. The data for azithromycin is even, even worse, potentially. And uh, a few of the limitations specifically is that we're looking at very, very, very small, small enrollment. This is only six patients in the azithromycin arm, and it wasn't actually added for potential antiviral activity, but the azithromycin was added at the discretion of the treating physician for the prevention of bacterial superinfection um, that, that may happen as a result of COVID-19. So it wasn't really even added for what the claim that they're trying to make on it. Additionally, we talked about this cycle threshold, and if, if you look at supplementary table one, 
The problem is that the cycle thresholds appear to be higher, potentially indicating a lower viral burden in those patients that were included in the combination therapy arm. And so those, all six patients in the combo arm had a cycle threshold of 23 or higher. Now, in the monotherapy group, there were actually five patients that had lower cycle thresholds, therefore a higher potential viral burden. And if we look at just the patients with a cycle threshold above 23 in both the combination arm and the monotherapy arm, what we see is a relatively similar rate of viral clearance, being 78% in the monotherapy arm versus 100% claimed in the combination therapy arm. So, so Ryan, so just like to pause and say in a nutshell, we're not really comparing apples to apples here. We're comparing apples to oranges. Very true. Yes, that is the, a, a tremendous limitation of this data. And again, the author should be commended for trying to get this information out quickly. But I think as the medical community, we have a responsibility to look at the strength of the data before we adopt it for widespread application. And so, therefore, the outcomes of the study have to be interpreted with extreme caution. And frankly, the data just isn't there to indicate that the addition of azithromycin to hydroxychloroquine is more effective than hydroxychloroquine alone. And the potential risk of making this assumption and widespread rollout of this regimen is the reality that um, there are appropriate and approved indications for azithromycin. It's a critical anti-infective that we use in the treatment of many infectious diseases. And if we widespread roll out the, the treatment of azithromycin in addition to hydroxychloroquine into our patients with COVID as the pandemic escalates, we run the risk of depleting our national store of azithromycin for those indications where it may be appropriate. And so it really becomes a stewardship of resources issue as we look at the evaluation of the available literature. Yeah, and we are already seeing signals of hydroxychloroquine shortages in, in patients with other indications for that medication that they maybe some flags out there that patients might not have ready access as they have before. So it could be concerning that we may see that situation also with azithromycin. So I completely agree with you, Dr. Stevens. The decision to use these medications for COVID-19 should not be taken lightly. On the surface, this regimen in this combination sounds appealing. These are both oral medications. They've been widely used for other indications. There's familiarity um, when prescribers with them, particularly for azithromycin. Um, but there are still significant risks. Looking at the exclusion criteria for this trial, they excluded patients with retinopathy, G6PD deficiency, and QT prolongation. So let's get back to the QT prolongation part. Um, but the other exclusions from this trial are related to hydroxychloroquine. This drug alone carries serious possible adverse effects, some related to duration of the therapy and some that are not. And I think it's important to distinguish between those two because this is a relatively short course of treatment um, that's being recommended in this situation. Uh, retinopathy specifically has been linked with hydroxychloroquine at a higher dose and when it's taken for more than five years. So if the patient has baseline retinopathy, I think it makes sense to avoid hydroxychloroquine. I, I completely agree with you, and I think it's um, it's important that we also distinct um, give the distinction of the chronic effects of hydroxychloroquine use versus the acute effects of hydroxychloroquine use. And it would seem to me like the risk would be low for retinopathy to develop given the duration and dosing that we're using potentially for, for the treatment of COVID-19. Another rare but possible reaction is hemolytic anemia in patients with G6PD deficiency. 
Yep, and that has been also gaining some attention, Dr. Rivera. Can you remind us uh, what is the mechanism behind this phenomenon? Yeah, absolutely. So in red blood cells where mitochondria are absent, G6PD is the only source of NADPH and reduced glutathione. These play a critical role in preventing oxidative damage to the red blood cell. So oxidants can be produced in the presence of hydroxychloroquine and other drugs, but we're focusing on hydroxychloroquine here, in the presence of G6PD deficiency. These oxidants can't be reduced, and the result is met hemoglobinemia. Those red blood cells in that state become susceptible to destruction, and when they're destroyed, the hemolysis can lead ultimately to hemolytic anemia. That's true, and fun fact is that not only can some drugs um, adversely cause hemolytic anemia in G6PD, but it was actually given the name uh, favism because of the potential for hemolytic anemia to develop in patients with G6PD deficiency that uh, consume fava beans. Very, very important point. So as a clinician, I keep on wondering how likely is the patient I am seeing has G6PD deficiency? Yeah, a lot of people are definitely asking that, and it, and it really depends on the patient. Um, the highest risks are known to be males of African, Asian, Mediterranean, or Middle Eastern descent. To give a specific example relevant to us in the U.S., African Americans in the U.S. have been estimated that one out of ten um, will have G6PD deficiency. It's interesting to note that males are at higher risk because um, the mutation or substitu substitution of a single base that is the cause of G6PD deficiency is located on an X chromosome. Um, in, in that case, males uh, would be at higher risk. So then, Christina, um, the question that I might have is, do you think it's worth, if we're going to check G6PD in um, our patients that we're potentially enrolling or starting on hydroxychloroquine therapy, is it worth it to wait for the result of that test before we start the therapy, or, or are we talking about a relatively small risk with a short course um, regimen at this dose? You know, it's, that's a pretty hotly debated question, and I don't think there's just one answer because it in part depends on your institution, what your lab's availability is for that test, and how fast they can turn the test around. If that test can be turned around in two to four hours or a day, that's a lot different than if it's a send-out test and it takes two to three days to come back. So um, in part, it's going to be sort of a local decision in some ways. Um, but if the patient, you know, one thing I can say, if the patient has or turns out to have G6PD deficiency, then hydroxychloroquine should be avoided. Met hemoglobinemia is difficult to treat. It can be very serious. And in an already ill patient, it could be disastrous. I also think, to the point of the duration of the hydroxychloroquine, I don't know that the duration of it really matters so much. We know that hemolytic anemia can happen with in patients that have G6PD deficiency with just one dose of some drugs, like respiracase, for example. So for me, that argument doesn't hold as much weight. Dr. Rivera, so are you saying that um, if I had a patient that came in or if we saw a patient that came in that was a Caucasian female, knowing what we know about the incidence of G6PD deficiency across um, different um, descents, would you say that a Caucasian female, you would have a, you would have a lower risk threshold and, a, and be more likely to start 
G6PD up front? Yeah, I think that does seem reasonable. Um, just to mention, too, there are a handful of other rare but possible complications reported with hydroxychloroquine. Um, not to be forgotten, some of the other things that have been reported include severe hypoglycemia in diabetics that are and are not taking um, uh, treatment for their diabetes, worsening of psoriasis, hepatic dysfunction. I suggest that anyone who plans to use this drug should really get familiar with the precautions and contraindications that are located um, in the package insert that can be found in tertiary drug sources like Micromedics, LexiComp, um, whatever your favorite may be, go to that and just really read about this drug and be familiar um, with the potential adverse effects so, so you can be monitoring and be on the lookout for those. And I would think that would be um, something that we should be doing at minimum, especially since there's a large amount of, of evidence that's constantly coming out as we get more and more experience with chlor both chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in the management of COVID. And so also I think it's important that we monitor the literature and what's coming out as far as to be able to better understand what the potential effects of all of this might be given the relative dearth of evidence at this point. And so what about azithromycin then? Well, azithromycin on its own is usually well tolerated, with nausea being the most common complaint, and that is dose-related. So the higher a dose at one specific time tends to cause more nausea, um, intra-abdominal distress, diarrhea. Um, but when it's combined with hydroxychloroquine, this just changes the whole ball game because they're concerned with QTC prolongation and, and cardiac concerns, and this is a real problem. And that's a, a particular thing, Dr. Rivera, that I think deserves a little bit more attention and a little bit more discussion that we have to be careful about because, again, we're, we're seeing the implementation of, of um, the, the regimens used in this French study and we don't have clinical and safety data that was described um, from those patients. And so can you elaborate a little bit more on the risk of QT prolongation and potential uh, monitoring for that? Well, I agree. You know, it's, it's a risk-to-benefit decision, and we should do whatever we can do to decrease the known risk. So ECG monitoring and electrolyte monitoring can help and to, to be a step to help decrease uh, potential risks, or at least to risk stratify your patients. That is true. And one concern that has come out is the potential need for um, ECGs in a patient population that, that is at risk for transmitting the virus to other healthcare professionals. And so, um, I, you know, do you have any advice for us uh, as far as how to, who should get ECGs or who should not in order to try to reduce the, the spread to healthcare professionals as well as the unnecessary um, use of PPE that's sort of becoming a more limited resource? That's a completely valid counterpart, and part of why it's so important to work with your cardiology colleagues. Here at Mayo Clinic, there's been a standard algorithm that was developed to help guide the decision-making. So this multidisciplinary approach has just been so critical and helpful at times like these. Um, interestingly, in regards to PPE, there's also been an emergency FDA approval of uh, a smartphone monitoring, one specific particular type of um, smartphone application that, that can be used in the setting of QTC monitoring for treatment of COVID that was FDA approved on March 20th. So that is something that people are citing as a, a potential way to decrease uh, healthcare exposure needs, PPE use, um, telemetry is also um, 
another recommended uh, uh, method of monitoring other than uh, taking ECGs for the QTC. And I also would like to point out that uh, the algorithm from the Mayo Clinic on uh, cardiovascular and QT prolongation issues related to the use of some of these drugs being used for COVID is available uh, this week. So we've been talking to um, doctors Rivera and Stevens on the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for the treatment of COVID. Uh, Hydroxychloroquine, we don't know if it works. Azithromycin use is based on a number of six patients. Toxicity is an issue. Efficacy is questionable. So to me, the data remains theoretical, experimental, and clinically anecdotal. There is currently no good evidence to support any one therapy for the management of patients with COVID at this time. A positive note, however, is that there are many clinical trials within and across institutions, in multi-center trials, and even the mega-trial that is organized by the World Health Organization that would assess safety and efficacy of these various candidate drugs. Participation in these trials is crucial, and we encourage you as providers to participate whenever possible by enrolling your patients in these clinical trials. We've been talking about azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID with Drs. Rivera and Dr. Steven. Thank you for your time. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week. Bye.